This episode of the new CISO is sponsored by Sentinel One. Sentinel One delivers autonomous endpoint protection through a single agent that successfully prevents, detects, and responds to attacks across all major vectors. Learn more at sentinelone.com. What is a bad CISO? Typically, it's somebody that was very good technically, that as a reward got promoted year over year, and then eventually found themselves in a position where they became incompetent. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Ed Collegian. Chief Information Security Officer at OpenText. Ed and I talk about the importance of building security into the DNA of your software and how to bounce back in the wake of a bad CISO. How do technically brilliant people end up in the wrong positions? And how can businesses guard against promoting someone into this problem? Is it a case of the purely technical just not being cut out for leadership? Ed, thank you so much for being here. If you would, uh, for those that don't know you, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, Steve. So I've been in the technology field for about 30 years, started as a uh, mainframe and mini developer on languages lost, forgotten, like COBOL and RPG for global companies like GE, EDS, and HP. I spent the second half of my career being a security advocate uh, for some of the world's largest companies. You know, last was uh, for an airplane manufacturer called Bombardier and now for one of the world's largest preeminent cloud companies called OpenText. So do me a favor, security advocate. Not everyone uses that term. Define that for us, if you would. Sure. I consider myself an advocate because security in itself typically is not an end, but a means to an end, Hmm. right? So my mindset has always been security is there to help the business accomplish its primary goal, whatever that is, right? So I've worked for companies like Molson Coors, they produced beer. That was their primary business. Security was not, but security was still important in supporting that end goal. At Bombardier, again, they built planes. Security was critical to get the airplane certified, but they weren't in the business of security. OpenText is a little bit different. We're a cloud company, so obviously security is, a, is of primary importance. But again, we don't make our money typically off security. We make it by providing quality software and hosting. Yep. Security is a must. Absolutely. Do you see, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine on this topic. Do you see security as a product of quality? Meaning if you like think QA, think software quality or you know, even client happiness, do you, is there a relationship there? Do, do you decouple or do you couple those two things? I think you have to decouple it. And you just have to look at the news coming out today with a unnamed large video conferencing software, right? Where the functionality is there, I think the code of the software is good, the software is easy easy to use and reliable, but security was never part of the design of their solution. Got it. Could you make the counter argument, though, that if you viewed, if you coupled that together, if you said, look, this isn't isn't shippable quality software, if it doesn't have security and privacy in it, it can, by that definition, can you couple the two together? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, if you look at organizations like Microsoft, you know, what is it, five, six years ago, they shut down all development and they retrained all of the developments on security, right? right? So security is part of their base 
quality framework. So absolutely. But I would say that most customers that I talk to and most organizations that I've worked for uh, don't view it as part of the quality framework. Yeah. They do view it as a separate entity and they run it as a separate program. Hmm. I think that I believe, and it may be controversial, um, I've, I've managed and, and run VM teams and, and helped with some AppSec, but I've never been responsible directly for that. Done a lot of QA work. I came up through development and web infrastructure and that kind of thing. So I've kind of had a, a smattering there. I do believe the future is that there's a unified, call it DevOps, call it DevSecOps, call it whatever that is, a, a unified element where quality and, and security come out on the same lens, I think. I want to see that, but that may be a flawed position. I'm curious to know what you think on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think what what has really allowed companies not to merge them yet is that we have not yet had an existential threat in the technology space, hmm. right? So, you know, we had WannaCry and we had NotPetya. Yeah, yeah, they were bad, but they weren't existentially dangerous. I think what's going to happen eventually, it's going to be our time. We're going to have some kind of major technological issue that's going to be existential in nature. And that's going to force companies to either build in security as part of their base set, or they're just going to disappear. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see, you know, that way, if nothing else, I can pressure test my, uh, maybe my, my hypothesis that was somewhat built in a vacuum. And I got to tell you, I, we don't know each other really well at all. We, we've met kind of virtually. It's taken some time to get you on the show. I, I've been super excited, both because of what I could tell kind of who you were, but also on the topic that we wanted to cover today that we sort of invented in one of our conversations. Before we jump into that, though, I, I like to ask everyone on the show, just in general, uh, we may have lacked in the past maybe the mentor that we wish we would have had when we were younger. And you've been at this, you said, almost 30 years. You've done development, project management, program management, IT ops, service delivery, infosec. When you were younger version of yourself, is there ever a point in time you would have given yourself advice? If yes, what would that advice have been? to yourself, to your younger self, kind of a mentorship theme there. Yeah. So Steve, I, I was one of the lucky ones that very early in my career, I fell on a boss that was wise and committed to developing his people. And I got a lot of good advice early on. So I would say I, I was told, you know, you have to work hard, you have to be committed. And I think the, the core value, what has really driven my success in the last 30 years has been one single truth, and that is to deliver more value than the organizations you're working for expect. And if you deliver that, if you deliver more value than they expect, you're always going to be successful. So I would agree. Have you ever had a point in time where maybe your version of value and the higher-ups version of value were two different things? I spent um, more than half of my career working in consulting positions. And so very quickly, I learned that the customer's reality should become my reality. Yeah, And so very early when I engage with a customer, whether it's a consulting engagement or whether it's as an employee, I take the time to really quickly figure out, okay, what's important to my customer? How do they find value? And how am I going to translate what's important to me into their same value metrics? Got it. So again, it's sort of what's their world, what's their definition of value, and then you have your own, and what's the bridging mechanism between the two, and probably in plain language to start, because you're you might not be dealing with a technical person. Is that accurate? Correct. And that really will define the difference between a successful security program and an unsuccessful one. 
So, you know, an unsuccessful one is somebody that tries to define security in a classical academic sense that doesn't make sense to the business. And so what they're going to realize is the business isn't supporting their activities. They're going to start getting frustrated. And as they get more frustrated, they're going to separate more and more from the business. And it's going to become a death spiral that will become almost unrecoverable. You're getting, in a good way, you're getting ahead of ahead of yourself here because what the topic we have fits in very nicely with this. And we want to take this down a couple different roads, but I want to talk to you about how to recover from a bad, or I think I said at one point, a shitty CISO. And, and what does that, what's that mean? So I guess I'll start by asking, is it a common thing for organizations to have to recover from a bad CISO, do you think? I think the answer is yes. I've kind of built a career on that. And what I would say is many times people get into that position not willingly, but the organization just naturally mutates into getting a bad CISO. So, you know, what is a bad CISO? Typically, it's somebody that was very good technically, that as a reward got promoted year over year, and then eventually found themselves in a position where they became incompetent, right? So Peter's complex, right? Promoted right. to your level of incompetence. And that's, that's really the challenge, right? So a lot of organizations have CISOs that probably were very good technically, but are not very good leaders. They're not strategic. They can't explain why things should be done in a value statement that the company business leaders can understand. Right. And so they can't build the trust required to implement a very complex program like security. And so they fail. So, so how do you know? Let's pretend the CISO is still there and maybe someone's listening that either reports to the CISO, they're not yet a CISO themselves, or maybe the CISO reports to them that's listening uh, now. How do you know if you've got a bad CISO? You outlined a couple of things. You talked about no trust, but what else? How do you know if you've got a bad CISO? Just look at the history of the person, right? What have they been able to accomplish in the last 24 to 36 months, right? Have they just kept the ship floating barely, which means that, hey, the business doesn't trust them, and so they're not getting the funding and support that they need? Or have they been able to grow, gain value in the organization, and have they become a trusted advisor to the business, right? The real winner, the real clencher happens when the organization finally realizes that, hey, you're not just there to make their lives difficult. You're actually adding value to their own jobs. And so they'll come to you early in the process of a new project, a new initiative, a new strategy, and say, hey, how can you, Mr. Security Guy, help me make this more successful? That's when you know that you've gotten a certain level of success within that company. So that may be an indicator if you're sort of taking notes at home. If you're not getting early invitations to be involved in strategic discussions rather than just random projects, uh, that may be an indicator that you've got a bad. Uh, CISO and ultimately then a bad program. Fair statement? Absolutely. So we, we've got at least one measure there, one indicator. What happens if you are the CISO who has replaced maybe the bad CISO? Maybe you're not completely aware. Maybe you're interviewing, uh, you know, the headhunters put you in there, or maybe you've, you've got a friend who's a, you know, a, a big three or four consultant that's saying, hey, you know, there's an executive search. What are the kinds of things that you ask? Let's do some interview practice here, which I'm sure you, you really wanted to do today. But if you were interviewing uh, at a company, what are the kinds of questions you ask of the ELT and the board or whomever to see, hey, have, what have they had to experience before? Do you have anything for us? Yeah. So you know, you're, what I tell people all the time is when you're interviewing for a job, obviously the company's trying to figure out if you're a good fit for that organization. But you're also trying to figure out whether you're a good fit for the organization and the organization's going to support 
your growth potential, what right. you want to aspire to. So the general questions are things like, where does security sit in the organization? Okay. Who, what kind of communication channels does security currently have? So who does security currently talk to? Do you only talk to the CIO? Or does it currently talk to people like the chief legal officer? Does it talk to the chief M&A officer? Does it talk to the CEO or other executives? Does it talk to the board? Right. Is there board level visibility for security? Right. You know, these are all questions that will tell you, okay, what kind of traction do they have? The other thing that you want to know is what have they been able to accomplish in the last 24 months? If basically they've kept the ship afloat, they haven't really put in new technologies, they don't talk about processes that they've implemented, then you know that you're coming into an organization that probably hasn't matured a lot in the last 24 months. Ed, is it fair if they don't have a good answer at all? Meaning you're obviously you're, you're meeting with somebody who's a non-security person. But if they can't answer, if you say, hey, what name me um, you know, a couple big security initiatives that have happened in the last year. If they can name nothing, I mean, I assume that's also maybe just as bad or even worse. Correct. And, and sometimes that will be two things. Either the person you're talking to doesn't know. And so as part of the interview process, you may want to talk to somebody else. Or number two, that the interviewer probably knows, but they don't want to show all their cards yet. And they don't want to let you know that, hey, we're in deep trouble. You're coming into an organization that really needs your help. They, want to, they don't want to give you that uh, negotiation advantage. Okay. So you, you seem like a pretty direct guy, kind of a no BS person. What's the terminology? How do you phrase that? You've got kind of a, a mafia tone to your voice a little bit. What's the thing you say to the guy that, thinks, that you think is holding out on you? What do you tell him, Ed? I will be very upfront. I've, I've had interviews in the past where I've asked these questions to a senior recruiter, and the person has given me all kinds of uh, hogwash answers. And I've told the person, listen, either you don't have the information that I need, or you're trying to withhold the truth. In order for me to make a just decision, I need to have this information. So either, you know, can you get it for me? Or two, can you put me in touch with somebody that can give me the right information? Right, right. And in, in most cases, if you're an executive, if you're, if you're a CISO, then you also want to talk to some of the executive leadership team members, right? So again, that's a, an interesting indicator. If you say, hey, can I talk to some of the ELT members? And they say, nope, then that could also indicate that security is not elevated to the right level within the organization and that those ELT members right now won't give security the time of day, which is probably why they don't want to meet you. <laughs> right. If they're not going to give it during major hire of an officer, you're sure as hell not going to get it. When after you've got the job. Exactly. Unless there's some other massive edict that sort of comes down or maybe even a crisis. So one of the things we talked about is there's sort of these themes, you know, you, you've talked through the interview process. There's, is there existing comms channels, existing exec relationships? But let's say you're now the CISO and you, you've decided to take the job. You know, the recruiter was done being either elusive or ignorant and their answers You've gotten beyond that. You've, you've got the comp that you've wanted. You think you kind of have a plan and there's an alignment. Now what's the cleanup? Like, where do you start? There's your first two weeks. What are, you, what are you going after? I worked for a large consulting company that had its own management training process. And one of the things I learned at one of those sessions was a good way to restructure a business that's not doing well is that you fire 75% of the employees. You get rid of 75% of the products of the company and you get rid of 75% of the customers, right? And in a business turnaround, that forces you to concentrate your efforts on the 25% most valuable things, assets in the business, right? 25% of your best people, 25% of your best products, and 25% of your best customers, which allows you to 
take a step back and rebuild. So depending on how bad the organization is doing, sometimes you won't have a choice but to take that approach where you have to get back to square one and sit down with the CEO and say, let's define what security means for the organization. Let's make sure that our visions are aligned. Right. I mean, that. so that's a pretty bold, I mean, that's some Game of Thrones stuff right there. So you're, you're talking about going in and maybe resetting three quarters of all of what you got, right? Correct. And that's a scary thought for most executives. And that's a scary thought for most CISOs, particularly in security, because we know it's tough to find good people. Right. But the reality is that's going to force you to figure out who your 25% best employees are. Sure. Because let's, let's be honest, you know, the 20, the 80, 20 rule definitely applies. You know, 20% of your staff produce 80% of your value. Completely agree. Completely agree. I wonder what the appetite would be of most companies. And maybe that's something, maybe that's an expectation that should be set, maybe an extreme one on the way in to say, look, if I get in there and it's that bad, if things are that screen, you know, me personally, I would say, you know, culture matters more than anything to me. And that means a lot of different things. You know, we, we can break that down into different pieces. But if, that, if, if that's sour, if it's broken, it may not be fixable. It may require the elimination of, of what's the accumulation of a lot of bad decisions and a lot of bad, bad talent. Yeah, and one bad apple will contaminate the entire batch. Dude, uh, yeah. So it, one bad apple, one bad manager, one bad director. I've seen that ruin, ruin organizations because uh, anybody who's worth a damn has already left. Yeah, exactly. And I think from a cultural perspective, you know, you definitely want to get, you want to meet all your employees. You want to figure out what motivates them, why they're there and why they come to work every day. And, you know, you have to be realistic. Not all of your employees are going to be this, you know, let's go down and break some walls and let's build something incredible. You need all kinds of employees. You need the guy who's going to wake up and just come to work and do a good job. And then you need the people who are going to do extraordinary work, but you need to know who's who. Right. Because ultimately, those are the people that are going to help you define and build what the organization should look like. And it comes down to authenticity as well. So if I'm interviewing for a CISO position, and I'm, let's say, the last candidate in the pile, before accepting the position, in addition to talking to the executives, I want to meet a couple of team members. Hmm. Because I want to figure out who these people are. Well, tell me tell me how does that go? So, okay, so we're, we're in the middle of the interview process, and... I ask you, okay, well, who do you want to meet, Ed? Like, who do you, who do you, do you want to meet an entry-level analyst? Do you want to meet the person who's in charge of provisioning? Like how, how many, and, and what are some of the characters at a high level? Do you, I mean, just in general, like again, you're coaching the listeners of the show. I think it's very wise to meet some folks. Who, who might you pick? So typically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a map of true perception and true reality. And so Just like if you went through a psychometric test, they're going to try to test three grades of people. They're going to try to test your employees, your peers, and your managers to get a perspective about you. You want to do the same thing. So obviously, you want to talk to the executives. The second tier that you want to talk to are some peers. And you want to talk to those peers about how's the boss? How does the organization work? What's the budgeting process like? You know, What are your biggest challenges as a VP in the organization? So that's what you want to learn from the peers. And then from your employees, what you want to figure out is you want to get all kinds of employees. So I want the entry-level SOC analyst all the way up to my most senior architect, because I want to know what kind of challenging environment has been created for each of those employees. Does the SOC analyst come to work because they don't have a choice? Or have we given them a roadmap 
to a better future. And they come to work excited every day to prove to the organization that, hey, you know what? I'm worthy of that next promotion. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's really important. And does the staff feel like they're tied to a larger mission? We just just spoke about that earlier with someone else earlier today of do they have that excitement and that connection to the company's mission, to their program's mission to say, okay, why do I get up? When my feet hit the floor, what am I excited about? I think we sometimes lack that. I think sometimes maybe even good leaders don't even define that well enough for their teams today. And I think the best measure for that is when you change companies as a leader, do some of your people want to follow you? So, you know, Open Text for me, uh, I've been at Open Text for four years now, uh, since April 2016. And uh, a bunch of my older employees from previous companies have actually joined me here at Open Text. Yes. Because they wanted to follow me, because yes. they, they knew the kind of leader I was, they knew the kind of environment that I created, and they believed in my vision of security. So if you, so to say it another way, if you're changing jobs and no one wants to come with you, that may be a pretty damning line on your resume as a leader. Exactly. It's a good indicator that maybe you're not doing the right things for your people. Yeah. And probably a good thing for self-awareness too, to say, ah, maybe it's time to course correct. Maybe there's time in your career to say, hey, maybe I should have done something differently. Or maybe I just went to a bad company too. But, correct. but typically, if you're, if you're a great leader, people will want to follow. They'll want to check in. They'll, they'll, they'll want to be part of your, your new challenge, your new mission. Correct. And that's a, good, that's a good marker, right? If you've been in the business for more than five or six years as an executive, and you know, over those years, if you change two or three companies and nobody wants to work with you again, or nobody will leave their current job to come to your new company, right. then that probably is an indicator that you know, you've got to do some introspection. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's extremely good. So we, we, we covered a couple themes, talked about relationships, talked about we've, we've covered kind of team, kind of with a slant on on interviewing and then kind of if you change, you know, who comes with you and what does your staff, what do the people think of you? When we spoke earlier, you kind of talked a bit about cleanup of strategy uh, and then ultimately measure, you know, how do you measure risk, what most people get wrong? Help us understand when you're going in, again, you're, you're cleaning up after maybe a bad CISO or maybe a bad culture. What's your formula for strategy? How do you start articulating that to others? Yeah. So what I tell people, you know, we talk to a lot of executives. Uh, many of our customers come to us for guidance. They want us to support their CISO. And the question I get most often is, I'm in an organization where security has no traction today. Hmm. I'm a good CISO. I understand the business. How do I get support from the organization? Right. And the key there is consistent small wins. Right. You definitely want to get those big projects. You want to have a three to five year pipeline, you want to have this massive, big, hairy, audacious goal that you're driving towards. But the reality is you need to have hundreds and thousands of very small, easily achievable successes that you can get. And then you could share with the executives to show that, hey, I mean business, I drive value, and I'm going to keep delivering value for this organization. Okay. You said two things there that I think are important, small wins and shareable wins. And many of them. What are some examples for those that, that might lack the imagination to come up with what those are? What are a couple of your favorite small and shareable wins? I know they could be anything, but what are some examples? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So 
you know, I won't give the name of the customer, but we have a very large accounting company. That's one of our customers. We had met with their security organization a year ago, and you know, we were talking about their security posture. And one of the things that we told them to concentrate on, based on the feedback that they had given us about their environment, was, hey, go out and improve your VPN environment, improve your VPN security. So we gave them this strategy, a multi-layered approach, and how they could get it in. And the team listened to us. They went out and they put it in place. And again, nobody noticed that they had done that, completely transparent, until the pandemic hit. And then, the, and then the pandemic hit, and they went into their CEO's office and said, hey, by the way, you may not be aware of it. We put these things in place six months ago, but we thought it's important that you realize what we did. And now the CEO is going, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that because now we're using it. And here's how it's helping us protect our organization when you know tens of thousands of people are now working from home. Okay. So that's a good thing, but you also kind of shared a bad thing too. And I know you know what it is. I'm not even going to say it. So it's, it's good that they could go to the, the, to the CEO now and sort of get credit. But what did they do wrong? What would you have had them do in addition, in addition to what you just shared, if anything? Yeah. So I think that there's, there's a couple of different kinds of wins. Some of the wins you want to do to immediately gain from so that you can market immediately to the organization and get credit for, right? right. And you're definitely going to do those because those, that's required to build credibility and get funding and get support. But you're also planting seeds for future things. So, you know, a good CISO sits down and says, where is the market going and where is it going to be in six to 12 months? And how do I get the organization there? So in this case, this was one example of us sitting down with them and saying, hey, guys, maybe this isn't something you're going to see today a benefit from because most of your users are in an office. But we can foresee that in a pandemic plan or a BCP plan, you're going to need to rely on this infrastructure, put this in place. And yes, you won't get credit for it today. but when you know, the uh, shit does hit the fan, people are going to be really thankful that you foresaw it and that you put it in place. And, you know, we couldn't have foreseen that this was going to happen this year, but we knew that that was eventually going to be necessary. (laughs) So extremely correct. There's organizations that I know that have the licensing ability, but don't have the iron to allow for 100% remote. There's just oversaturation of those links. And so they're having to go and, and not to get too much sort of pandemic content, but let's just say from a shift, workforce shift, like we've seen, you know, they're, they're having to exclude the use of the VPN on purpose and go, you know, direct to cloud, which can cause other issues if done in a rush, let's say. But I think that that was fantastic advice and I'm glad they went with it. The path I was going to go down on that though, is that maybe the CEO wouldn't know about a VPN change or a strategy change there, but I think it would have been cool if they could have had maybe a couple of marketable, which is a term you use, which I love, smaller wins along the way to say, hey, instead of saying, you might not know about this, it's you might remember some changes that we asked for or some changes that we implemented a year ago or six months ago. This is a continuation of that great strategy and it saved our ass here. I mean, that's kind of where I was flirting with that. Is that maybe they already did that, but I mean, you're, a, you're absolutely, no, you're, and you're absolutely right. In this particular case, I don't think their CISO is bad, but I think their CISO is not the strongest CISO and maybe not the right CISO for that organization. So they didn't take that route. Right. And so the way they got credibility was when everything went bad and they could pull out that big hammer. But you're right. Ordinarily, if they had an appropriate strategy in place, they would have been getting just small wins regularly, consecutively. And so, you know, we work with some customers and we say, hey, you know, don't wait for that big red team every year to come in and tell you what's broken. Take five or 10 of your best employees, give them one week a quarter. And ask them to test your security and continuously try to improve it. No question. 
And so these are small wins. And these are things that you could then go to the CEO and say, hey, Mr. CEO, we found these holes that we plugged. And had we not plugged it, that could have opened up us to regulatory issues that could have opened up to attack, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and your staff is going to like that because they're going to get geeked up about it because it's something different. It's something special. It's, 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 um, it's maybe you know adversary simulation or red teaming. But if you put the right controls around it, it now becomes something that you can, again, back to the term market and communicate if you're doing that you know, in a friendly way that yields the ability to now tell interesting stories and probably do it at a fairly cost-effective way. Correct. And you're also training your people at the same time. You're giving people an opportunity to learn and grow, and you're yeah. making their work environment more fun. Like, I mean, let's not forget we're in security. A big part of our people are geeks. They like nothing more than sitting in front of a black screen and proving to the world that they have the skills to compete. Right. It's solving puzzles. It's looking for and so it's looking for puzzles and solving puzzles. And 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 if you provide a program that allows for that, you're going to win. But I think the big thing that we miss, there's there's a lot of brilliant people. I think if anything, people will disagree, maybe most, but I think that CISOs or what I'll call security leaders in general are bad marketers, bad and often bad communicators. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. And that's uh, that's a message I started to give to my directors very early uh, when I joined OpenText. You know, so or- originally, as I was building the team, I had to do some of the technical work because we just didn't have all of the expertise that we needed at the time. But my mantra to the team was, hey, as soon as you guys are able to offload me from this day-to-day work, my job then is to go and break the red tape and be your used car salesman. <laughs> okay. It's to fight with the executives to A, get you at the table sooner and more often, B, to get you the kind of people that we need to continue growing the team, and C, to sell our wins and cre- to gain credibility and gain additional support. Yeah. So it's, it's a fight out there. People trade on attention. The world trades on attention. In many cases, the only attention a security program gets is negative because someone's pissed off about a password lockout or some sort of provisioning issue or some sort of outage, and there's no positive attention. And so if you lack that, that advocacy that you mentioned earlier, and if that's not a priority, or if you're spending too much time on the tech and you you had to do it because you had to, but if you're not evolving and utilizing and developing those skills, you're kind of screwed, especially at a larger company, I think. So that to me, I'm fascinated uh, to hear more about from you today on, we could spend all day on this, but just on the marketing piece. Like you mentioned small and quick wins. That's part of that formula. But what does marketing and communications mean to you? What's a couple things that, that you've figured out along the way? So, so the question is, how do you convert security into a business function, right? So as an example, if you tell a CEO, hey, we upgraded this many firewalls today, great. You know, we secured this many mobile endpoints, fine, great, whatever. You know, what does that mean to me? You know, I'm worried about revenue. I'm worried about customer retention. But as an example, you know, OpenText is a cloud business, right? We run the world's largest business-to-business network. And so we're a business of trust. And so I can convert all of my security activities into how we help gain new customers or help keep existing customers. All right. I'm going to stop you there. So that's, if you ever listen to anything, I'm going to get selfish and kind of excited at the same time here. My statement, I couldn't agree more. What I learned the hard way, working in a very big company that had a very big problem, 
is that I learned the board cares about one thing. And it's exactly what you said. I can't stress that enough. It's the best advice. I'm so glad to hear you say it because I'm sure you're smarter than I am. It's, it's the, the board cares about the acquisition and the retention of logos. That's the thing I learned through going through a massive breach and sort of helping recover from that. It's the best advice I've, I, I've, that I can muster in hearing you say it validates it. If someone's listening, it's so how does your program help emphasize that? Sorry to interrupt, but that's, it's, again, it's, it's exciting, but I think it's equally powerful. So thank you. No, I absolutely agree. And, and this is where if you do your job properly in the, in the security space, you're going to see your functions grow. You know, if people following me on LinkedIn, they'll see that I'm constantly posting job postings. And they're not just geek jobs for a security operations team. <laughs> We've been able to grow our security function. So we own compliance for the organization. We own the RNBCP. There are a lot of ancillary functions that have migrated to our team over the years because we've been able to convert our work into tangible, measurable business value. And that's my advice to, secu- to executives in security is don't do security just for the sake of doing security and don't do academic security, right? So don't do something just because it's the right thing. Every organization's needs are different. And so you have to tailor your program for what your organization needs. Hey, if you're a bank, maybe you need that Cadillac security. But if you're not a bank, if you produce widgets, then maybe the Honda security is good enough. And if you're somebody that can't live with that as an executive, then maybe that company's not for you. You know, there right. are executives that say, hey, if I can't put in place the freshest, coolest, most bleeding edge technology, then I'm not happy. Then maybe that company's not for you. You've been able to grow out of what I'll call business creativity or aligning with kind of the needs of the company. But everyone's stating that. Everyone's saying, oh, I want, you know, what's the best board metric? What's the, the business? How do you, what are some things that you think most security people lack? And maybe it's a creative lens that they lack. When they see the people that are out making money for the company, how do you go out? What are some examples of some things that you've that you've marketed and added and that they've supported you with adding. It doesn't have to be your current employer, but just in general. Like what gives some advice and some creative lessons to those listening. So first you have to ter- determine what is important for the organization. So, you know, a couple of years ago when Trump had his apprentice show, you could figure out which team was going to win by the strategy that they took. You know, the people that took the time to go back and ask questions like, hey, what is it we're trying to accomplish? How do we get there? typically are the ones that won. The ones that just took the instructions, ran out and tried to build a widget or a business typically failed. And that's my typical, um, my typical suggestion to most executives is take the time to talk to the appropriate people and figure out how you can help them make their lives easier, right? So sit down with the CEO and say, hey, Mr. CEO, what is the biggest problem for you in security? How can I help you sleep at night? How do I help you sell more? You know, sit down with the legal officer and say, hey, Mr. Chief Legal Officer, what keeps you up at night? And how can I help you make your job easier? Yeah. And that's, and that's the simple truth is build your program to support the organization. Figure out what is most important to your company. And, you know, if you're in banking and insurance, maybe that's more of the compliance piece. If you're into selling widgets, maybe it's the sales piece, marketing piece. Figure out what's most important to you and start with that. I think... So the first bit of this formula that you're giving is having those chats. And I think there's some underserved areas. I think two that often happen, in my opinion, and people that have heard me talk about this already maybe know this, is uh, especially sales, legal and sales. But 
sales teams often get the requests. Well, they always get sort of the complaints or the requests for things. And so it's interesting if you look at trends of these sort of, um, you know, these risk reports that are given before you sign contracts of whatever, whatever you're doing, and they may ask something as basic, do you have a hunt program? And if you don't have one, you then either have to tell the truth or you have to fib, which many organizations do. They'll write some nonsense in there or some, even a, a middle person will write an answer. So you don't have to look bad in this evaluation because you might not win the deal. I would encourage people to go in and, and review those and see, you know what, we're seeing an uptick in the requests for hunt programs or the hunt capability. And then go back to the sales teams and say, hey, I've seen 10 of these in the last quarter. Like, would you support me if I, if I propose this? And they're going to say, oh, yeah. That's absolutely, absolutely correct. And uh, in, my, in the structures we typically put together in organizations where security is a key player, typically you have a pre-sales group within the security team that sees all of the requests. And that is absolutely a monthly request, a trending request that you should share with your executives. So, you know, if we're talking about sales, typically, you know, you want to become indispensable to the sales team. So the first thing you have to do is you have to train them on what security is and what kind of questions and challenges they're going to get from customers. And so you have to build a sales training program for security. And right. so now they're going to keep, they're going to see you in a positive light because, hey, here's this guy trying to help me close more deals or be invited to the table more often. So once you've done that, the second part of it is exactly what you said, is figuring out, hey, what are the trends with customers? What are they asking for nowadays? And what do we think they're going to ask for in six months or 12 months? And then you build a program for the, for the company that says, hey, we're seeing these types of requests and we think these other requests are going to start coming down. It's yep. going to take us 12 months to get there anyway. Here's how we want to get there. And here's how we think it's going to support the business. And by the way, this is how we quantify the value that we're going to add to the business. We think that we're going to open up a brand new market segment. And we think that you're going to be able to sell two, $2 billion more in revenue in this product or service. Yeah, done. Yep. I think that I can remember working with a sales team once that was having some challenges because there had been a major security incident. And I remember writing up kind of the top five things that they might want to know. There was larger training, but this is just something that, that we did quickly. And then going down and doing a quick presentation at their um, quarterly business review. And, uh, and then I said, look, I don't expect you to remember any of this, but maybe you'll remember this one statement. I want you to be able to tell the customer that here's one thing that differentiates us from our industry peers as it relates to security. Now, the fact is my team and I had to think of what that was and what, how's that tie back to our mission and say, and what's the one idea I want to leave you with? You're concerned about security. This is something I want to leave with the sales team. And they love that. I'm going to give you one thing. This is the one thing we're going to do better than any of our industry peers. And I want to be able to coach you on how to state that. And they loved it. And it went very, very well. They saw me as a completely different person in, in the program. So I think that that's the, one of the lacking things. Many security people have never met their sales teams. Correct. And the other thing that you could do to help them beyond that is help by building sales collateral. I mean, security teams find that weird. Why would we be building sales collateral? But the reality is you're helping the sales team close deals, but you're also making sure that you're making your life easier as a security guy. For those that may not know, because there's probably some, some that, are, that don't know what sales collateral is, what, when you state that, what do you mean by that? That can be as fancy as a marketing document, all okay. glossy and shiny, or it could be um, snippets of quick answers that the sales rep can give a customer in a meeting. 
So oftentimes that's, hey, if the customer asks you this question, here's the answer you throw at them. Yeah. And I think that if you haven't had those chats, you're not going to know. You're not going to have a, a common list of questions. You can't build an FAQ. So it's it's really understanding. I'll tell you, if you can begin, if you make friends with the people that make money for your company, I was able to get a lot of stuff done in my past by being friendly when we had a, an issue with a program, you know, with, with, a, with a deal and just actually inviting them in and, and, and giving them a tour even uh, was, was extremely helpful. Not everybody loved it. But, um, you know, bringing them in through the sock and doing some presentations and getting them comfortable, man, that moved mountains. Yeah, and we could, we could go to something completely different, forget the sales team for a second, but you have to help with revenue. So if I take one of my previous employers, Bombardier, the way we got traction with the organization is we made security a requirement to get the airplane certified with the global authorities. And as soon as we got that done, as soon as we became part of that certification process, for brand new airplanes, we became on the critical path for revenue. Got it. And it unblocked all of our strategy and revenue. Now you're seen in a different light. You're seen at the, you're probably brought into the big kid table immediately at that point. Yeah. I mean, you've been in this business a long time, Steve, right? What's the biggest thing that you hear when you go into most companies is security is seen as the team of no. (laughs) Right, Right, right. So how do you change that mindset? How do you go from the no team to the, yes, we can, and here's how we're going to get there. Correct. Yeah, and it's and that I would argue it, it starts with sort of the personality of the program uh, in many ways. And, and it's, you, know, you can't always say yes, but if you haven't built up or you know, you've got to earn trust, it's like any other friendship, right? If I, you don't earn best friend status or even trusted you know, party status out of the gate, you've got to earn that. You've, they've got to see that that you're real ready to put in the work, that you're ready to ask questions, that you're ready to close your mouth and listen, and, and then bring that forward and say, okay, what is it that I'm really here to do? To ask and answer the questions that you've helped outline here. You know, what, what is my real value statement? What's the reality of my position? And, and how do I align it to something that makes sense? I don't think everybody has, has worked that muscle. And then the ability that you've outlined, you've not said it, but your thinking then cascades into the minds of your employees. They're learning how to do this by mimicking you and learning the whys and the hows of this, which I think is another, a whole other topic of security skill mentorship. I don't know if you talk a little bit about that. I mean, sure. you told me once that if you want to be a good exec, you, you must be well-rounded, and that comes through mentorship. What do you, what's, your, what's some of your, your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely agree, and that's something that I try to instill in every single one of my employees. Anybody who wants to be a leader in security, I try to create a coaching program from there. And I learned this, you know, 28 years ago from one of my earliest bosses who basically took a chance on a young, overconfident young kid, put me on a plane, sent me to Hong Kong for two years to run a global project for an airline there. And his solution to me was, hey, Ed, if you want to be a good security guy, if you want to be an IT leader, you can't just be an IT leader. You've got to understand the businesses of everybody else you're dealing with. You've got to understand what it means to run a procurement team. You've got to understand how to do budgeting. You've got to understand what HR means, not just hiring and firing, but all of the challenges that come with change management for an organization. You've got you to gotta be able to read a legal contract. <laughs> yes, you do. And unfortunately, if you're a technical specialist that's been in the company for a while, and the way the company has rewarded you is through constant promotion, you may not have gotten all of that education before getting to the pro- promoted to the level of executive. Right. And now you're in an executive position, 
and you're missing these critical skills. If you're missing these critical skills, how do you train your people on these critical skills? And, you know, so that's where the challenge starts. You know, I think genuine love for your employees cannot be faked. You know, when I look at my employees, I try to meet every one of my employees twice a year or at least once a year. I know everything about them. I know what motivates them. I know how they got to that company. I know their family status. I know why, why they wake up in the morning and I know their ambitions. And based on that, I can develop a program for each and every one of my employees and ensure that my leaders are following that strategy for that employee and they're training them. My goal, my ultimate measure with employee success is if an employee leaves my team, whether that's through promotion or goes to some other company in the future, if I've made them better, if they are better for having worked for me, then I've succeeded. Yeah. I think I'm nodding my head here. I mean, how do you, I'm going to take this maybe a step further. And this isn't like a business value question, but how do you, you've been doing this a while. I can tell you're very comfortable with yourself. You have had a a long career. You're well-known. How do you evaluate your own success? What does that really mean? How do you want to be known when you're done being a CISO? How will you evaluate yourself when, you're, when you've retired? You know, I want to leave a trail of success. And that's success for the companies that I've worked for and success for the employees that have worked for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've been in this business a long time. I've managed thousands and thousands of people in, you know, several dozen different countries around the world. And nothing makes me happier than an employee reaching out to me that has worked for me 10 years ago that reaches out to me now and says, hey, Ed, guess what? I'm now the CISO of this organization, and that became possible because you did this to me. You know, funny enough, I won't say which company it was, but there's uh, one of the previous companies I worked for, I inherited a manager. And I wasn't sure whether this person would be good, a good fit for me. So you know, I put him through a ton of challenges. I gave him real-world tests. I gave him a lot of difficult positions. And when I left that organization, he came to me and said, hey, Ed, you know, when you first took this job and you started evaluating me, he goes, I literally thought you were crazy. He goes, I couldn't understand what you were doing to me. But he goes, now that he goes, I've gone through all of that. He goes, I have become a better executive because you put me through all of those. And the reality is there's a time for academic training, which is great. But I think that hands-on situation learning is the best. And so by knowing every single one of my employees and my leaders, I will purposefully put them in positions that will make them uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That will force them to grow because once they pop, that belief system, they're going to realize, hey, if I'm able to do this, what else am I capable of? No question. One of the statements I used to make to <laughs> to my the, the people to which I reported, but, but more importantly, to the staff with which I worked is, my job is to make you expensive. Expensive to yourself, uh, to the market, and to the company. And what I mean by that is we're going to learn new skills. I want you to work on important things not foolish things. Uh, I want to work on projects that will enrich you that are valuable to the company, but also valuable to the market and improve you as an individual. So we're, we're going to do expensive things. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily that we're all just focusing on some sort of dollar amount, but it's expensive in a, in a positive way, but it's very much the same way. And it's, it was my job to set strategy and, and, and daily action that surrounds that. So is this a good use of our time or a dumb use of our time? Like those sorts of things. And then position that around different goals to say, okay, does it align with our strategy? Does this work for the individual? 
some of my most fun I've ever had is, is those moments, those teaching moments. Much like you said, there's nothing better. There's nothing better to get that text or that message or that email, you know, something on LinkedIn to say, hey, you helped me. Like you, you may not remember this conversation we had seven years ago, but this helped me. Nothing better. And we've got one more question uh, I'd like to ask, um, pursuant to the name of the show, which is the new CISO. Uh, what does being a new CISO mean to you? It means never stopping to learn. Ultimately, it comes down to that, is um, being hungry to learn and improve and become the best version of yourself that you can be. I completely agree. Ed, I was looking forward to this for a very long time. You didn't disappoint. I've had a phenomenal time speaking with you and, and, and hearing your perspectives. Um, thank you for the education. Thank you for the time. You've been an awesome guest. Thanks for having me, Stevie. It's been wonderful talking to you today. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 